This episode of the CE Podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the Life Insurance Licensing Program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. We're on to episode three of season two. This episode will be good for continuing education credits up until June the 30th of 2019. This episode will qualify for one life or accident sickness credit in the province of Alberta. It'll be good for life and ANS credits in all other jurisdictions and one financial planning credit through Financial Planning Canada. And a couple of administrative items before I get into the content. We've had a little bit of a delay here at the start of season two and that's because the first episode of season two, and maybe this was ambitious, but the first episode of season two was an ethics episode and it turns out it just took us longer than we were hoping for to get all of our approvals in. The episode's been done for quite some time, but we're trying something new and I think it's caught some of our uh, regulatory partners off guard. So no uh, knock on anybody there. It's something new and everybody's going to have a little bit of learning to go along with that. I totally understand that. We have not been as quick as I would like, certainly at every stage along the way. So today's episode, we're going to hear from Mitchell and Megan, and it's a little bit of a disconnect in the topics they're going to talk about. Uh, Mitchell's going to talk about using a registered education savings plan in an unusual manner, and Megan is going to talk about solving a problem around prescription drugs in a group benefits plan But she's also going to talk about using a little bit of an unconventional solution. So the linkage here is that we have two very thoughtful people. And I think you'll hear that as you hear them discuss the problems that they have faced here, that their clients have faced, and how they have approached the problem and found solutions to those problems. So there's uh, quite a bit here in terms of technical detail. I will try to get enough in there to be useful. The color for today's episode is pink. The color for today's episode is pink. The first interview we're going to hear is from Mitchell, and you'll hear Mitchell talk about a problem where he had a client who doesn't have access to RSP because of a lack of earned income. Of course, you need earned income in order to start building RSP room. And also TFSA was not ideal here. 
And so he came at this from a little bit of a different angle, and I really like what he did here. I'm going to let Mitchell talk through this, and then following the interview, I'm going to review some of the technical items that come up in here. So let's hear from Mitchell, hear about this unusual problem and this creative solution. Thanks very much for joining us today, Mitchell. Yeah, thanks for having me. Mitchell is a financial advisor based in Kingsville, Ontario. Mitchell has his life license, his property and casualty licensing, and I believe funds licensing and currently working towards your CFP designation. Mitchell, do I have that all right? Yep. And I just achieved the level one with the Financial Planning Standards Council. So yes, other, other than that, all, all correct. Congratulations. The, uh, yeah. the level one is a big accomplishment, not an easy exam for sure. Not a fun one, but yeah, I appreciate yeah. it. All right. Great stuff. Hopefully by the time this goes live, you'll be well on your way to, or maybe have already written the CFP exam. Yeah, hopefully that's the plan. So Mitchell, you and I had chatted briefly before the recording about a client of yours who's using a registered education savings plan in a little bit of an unconventional sense. Can you give us a little background about this client, Mitchell? Yeah, 100%. So obviously names omitted, but uh, she was a young, uh, young client who when she was about 17 years old, she was bit by a dog and the settlement ended up due to her injuries being around 50,000 um, that she received as a lump sum due to that settlement. So when she came to see me earlier this year, she had turned 18 and she was currently going to school in the States on a full ride scholarship playing hockey, actually uh, kind of cool enough. Um, so she didn't have any educational costs and at this point as well, she had never actually worked a job where she's had to uh, tell the CRA about her income anyway. Um, so she hadn't accumulated any um, RRSP room. Also being 18, she hadn't had any uh, tax-free savings account room. So with her primary goal, knowing that she was going to be in school for a while, it became kind of an interesting kind of circumstance where I needed to figure out a way to accumulate some growth for this 50000 but also remove the headache of uh, having to file every single year with a non-registered account or something of that sort. So interestingly enough, I, I ended up looking at the RESP, uh, the Registered Education Savings Plan is the best option for her. Due to the primary fact that she was expecting to be out of school in the next four years, she had that $5,500 worth of room um, in her tax-free savings account, which we used. Um, but the remainder, since she wasn't going to need that money for well over 10 years, she had really no need for that money other than in the, uh, the long term, well over even the 20 years, we had uh, discussed placing that in an education savings plan with her as the subscriber since when she had started to come back and started to work, we could start to roll that money into her RRSP. Um, using that at that time to, uh, to reduce her taxable income in her working years um, and also negate the 20% tax in the education savings plan for taking that money back out. Naturally, especially since her age, we couldn't have done it anyway. We weren't applying for any educational grants because that, I mean, that would have all had to been paid back anyway and we weren't using it for tuition. Uh, so we ended up using it in kind of a fun way where it was just specifically a 30-year kind of tax vessel um, under the assumption that within the next few years, she would start to earn income at at least a minimum wage basis and would have the room available in her RSP to roll all of that over. You're looking then at doing a series of accumulated income payments from the RESP into her eventual RRSP. I have that right? 
Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's the long-term kind of strategy. Um, so once she's back working, we're going to be uh, rolling that money out of the RESP on kind of a gradual basis as she earns her RSP contribution room, allowing her to move money over without having to actually invest that money into the RSP out of her income when she's at a lower income area where it's, uh, it's always fun and, and feels like pulling teeth to try to get somebody in their 20s to uh, put 18% of their income away when that feels like it's a fortune to them. Um, so this allows to kind of move that over without needing to pull that full 18% out of her income as she's kind of earning it in her earlier stages. Right. It may get her used to the idea of saving at that rate and then give her a little bit of cushion so that she can continue saving once the RESP is fully transferred over. Is that the thought process? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Jason. That's, that's exactly the kind of the, uh, the long-term plan. And especially with her being, you know, in the States full-time and living down it, not, not permanently living, she's back in the summer, so she would still be a resident of Canada. But with her being in the States for school, realistically, the, the extra headache of filing with the CRA for a non-registered account and paying, I mean, realistically, she wouldn't be paying taxes at all on that income, most likely. Um, but it kind of negates the headache and also allows that tax deferred growth that she wasn't else going to be um, kind of allotted uh, if she had gone the non-registered route. So yeah, so it's also more on a behavioral basis to get her in the, uh, the long-term idea of saving and to show her that, you know, over that time, what can actually be earned with disciplined savings. Because I, I predict over that uh, 10, 15 year range, she's going to see that 50,000 turn into something quite a bit nicer, especially with a very equity focused portfolio. I think on a behavioral basis, also give her some early uh, understanding of uh, compound interest and uh, kind of dividend growth um, and what tax deferred growth can kind of do for a long-term retirement plan. Now, given because the uh, RSP rollover limit from the accumulated income payment is $50,000, what's the plan if you're, and hopefully it does happen, if your account value ends up uh, north of $50,000 here? Well, it it had been a bit shy of it. Um, So with with kind of the timing, I mean, uh, I I run the numbers kind of backwards and forwards and and it shouldn't. Worst case, if it does, then the small penalty tax would be lower than I would imagine she would have been earning in the uh, the non-registered account anyway. However, she should not break that fifty thousand. Is it was closer to like the thirty-five, forty thousand range of what ended up in that account, uh, with the small amount being able to go into her tax-free savings account. My thought here being that uh, you have a long time, you have 31 years to right. collapse this plan. I think it would be an extremely high likelihood that somebody who obtains a bachelor's degree in their late teens, early 20s, would probably at some point over the next 31 years be at some point engaged in some sort of post-secondary education. I think you'll find there's an opportunity to clean that out without any penalty tax at some future date anyways? Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, all all of my numbers were assuming she was going to earn minimum wage coming out of university, which really seems unrealistic anyway. And it was more of a more conservative in nature, but realistically coming out of a, you know, a a prestigious American school with a bachelor's degree. And, and she had talked about potentially going for a master's as well. The likelihood is that over a over 31 years, she should be earning the, uh, the income available to make that rollover pretty seamless without ever seeing any penalty taxes, which is why it seemed to be such an advantageous approach for her. Now, there will be a lot of folks listening to this who would see this lump sum and go to, let's say, a par whole life policy. Did you contemplate uh, life insurance as a place to sock away that cash, Mitchell? Yeah, I, I absolutely ran those numbers as well. Again, with with her 
concern being um, filing with the CRA and kind of those extra logistics, the PAR policy wouldn't necessarily negate that um, as, as she would still have to file on kind of an annual basis. And when uh, when I kind of ran the, the long term and her risk tolerance and, and her ability to take on quite a bit of risk since this money was not going to be needed for a long time, it seemed like the, uh, the global equities and a healthy diversified mix of equities anyway, but very heavy in the, uh, the global spectrum, allowed for a much more advantageous return than looking at a participating policy. And over the course of the next you know, few years that we'd be doing this anyway, running the rate differences on a life insurance policy from you know, this year to five years from now was relatively negligible on a premium side of things, where it would be more advantageous for us to take a look at that in the future. And the participating rates of, of the companies that I had have available based off of even their highest projections did not seem to really compete with my long-term numbers of a more uh, more risky equity portfolio. We did run both options and I presented both options to her. And she felt that the, um, the tax deferred growth with the higher risk investments was going to be a more advantageous approach based off of her risk tolerance and kind of long-term goals. Okay, that is an interesting use of the RESP. Did you have any last-minute thoughts around dealing with this client or anything else around this particular scenario, Mitchell? Well, I, I find the interesting thing, especially with, with what I found with this client, is one of the biggest on behavioral basis is I, I've really noticed with younger clients is a lot of times it's not the younger clients you need to sell. Like m- myself, I'm, I'm a younger advisor in my early 20s. So when I'm speaking with a younger client, it's almost more of like a, um, and this will kind of potentially roll into future conversation as well, but it's really more of like a peer conversation where they look at you with a lot more trust. But the, the particular issue I had with this client was I felt like I had to be convincing the mother because um, the mother was in every meeting as well. And that, that's what made this more difficult is the mother had come from several other institutions where, you know, advisors had been quoting 10 to 15% rates of return. And in the long term, my, my biggest kind of battle on this client was selling the value of the the plan and reach and hitting the goals compared to just competing on rates. Because I found a lot of advisors were recommending a non-registered account and boasting, you know, 10 to 15% return rates, which may have happened over the last two years, potentially. I mean, it's not unrealistic to imagine that it could have happened. But when we're talking over the course of a long-term, you know, 30-year plan, it's kind of hammering home the, uh, the more realistic asset allocation to goals. And with this particular client, the biggest behavior behavioral issue was the fact that she still was treated as a child um, and that I had to convince an older client that my advice was sound compared to some older advisors who boasted large returns. It just made for a very fun meeting. Yeah, that makes sense. Competing on returns is tough. And I obviously agree with facing everything on the plan and returns really being secondary. It's good that this client and her mother responded positively to that. Thanks very much for sharing that, Mitchell. That's an interesting story, a little bit of an unconventional story, and good to think outside the proverbial box here. Thanks so much. Okay, so we hear about the use of the Registered Education Savings Plan really almost as a pure tax deferral tool here for somebody who doesn't have other tax deferral options available. And I like that Mitchell talked about the RRSP and talked about using the TFSA. And we even talked in there about using permanent life insurance, all available tax strategies. But he went with the RESP. And given the dollar amounts here and maybe the ongoing need for liquidity, that's fairly useful. 
Now, to make sense of this, I think it's worth having a look at the different types of RESP withdrawals. So there are actually four different types of RESP withdrawals. The first is the refund of contributions. And you can take a refund of contributions anytime. Now, the proper RESP refund of contributions would be taken while the beneficiary of the plan is in school. And the interesting thing here, of course, is that in this case, the plan beneficiary is also going to be the subscriber, which is unusual, but absolutely permitted. This would be a non-family plan or an individual plan. And if that person is not going to school, when you take that refund of contributions, then you have to repay a proportional amount of any grants or bonds received. Of course, there are no grants or bonds here, so that does not matter. So refund of contributions will be available any time, and Mitchell knows that and knows that he's not sacrificing any liquidity by using the RESP there. Now, if you take a refund of contributions while the child is in school, then there is no proportional repayment of grants or bonds. There's no limit to the refund of contributions. It's with the education assistance payment, the EAP. That's where we have a limit. So while the plan beneficiary is in school, you can take an EAP. And the EAP represents grants, bonds, and growth generated within the plan. And the EAP is paid to the plan beneficiary, taxable to the plan beneficiary. These are all amounts that would have never previously been taxed, so they do have to be taxed. And that's actually an important attribute here because in a traditional family situation, this creates a little bit of an income split that I think is often overlooked with the RESP. So we have the return of contributions, we have the education assistance payment, and in the first semester of full-time education, the normal limit on the EAP is $5,000. If it's a more expensive program like flight school, for example, you can actually apply to ESDC and take out a larger amount. If it's a part-time program, then you can only take $3,000 out in that first semester. In subsequent semesters, there's no limit to the EAP, and normally, I do recommend that people take out as much EAP as they can as early as possible because if the plan beneficiary doesn't stay in school, you've at least cleaned out that portion of the plan. You can subsequently take the refund of contributions out without a problem. You'll get a little bit of growth there always. It's going to have to come out at some later point, but the more of that money you get out, well, you know you can get it out, the better it is. It doesn't really apply to Mitchell's client situation, but something to think about. The third type of withdrawal from the RESP then is the accumulated income payment. And this is the one you want to avoid. This did come up. It's got a brief mention in the interview with Mitchell. And the accumulated income payment is where you are taking a withdrawal of grants, bonds, and growth, and the plan beneficiary is not in school. And the consequence of this is that it's either going to be taxed as ordinary income plus a bonus 20%. So if you're at a 40% tax bracket, for example, that accumulated income payment comes out at a 60% tax rate. So very expensive to take that accumulated income payment. Even if you're at a very, very low tax bracket, you still get that 20% bonus to your tax payable. However, what is available 
as part of an AIP, as part of the accumulated income payment, is a rollover into the plan subscribers RRSP. Up to $50,000 can be rolled into the RRSP. There does have to be contribution room available, so you can't over-contribute to the RRSP that way. You don't get a deduction, but you also don't have to pay tax on the withdrawal, and especially important is you don't have to pay that 20% extra. So Mitchell had clearly done his homework around that and understood the implications. He talked about the $50,000 cap, said, look, if we even come close to that, I'll be surprised here, but he was aware of it, and I would anticipate that if that gets close to that $50,000, that that would just be the time to trigger that AIP. Of course, you do have to make sure that there is adequate RRSP room in order to do that. And in the case that you have joint subscribers, which wouldn't happen here, this doesn't sound like a case where a joint subscriber is possible, but in the traditional parents using the RESP for the kids, you can have joint subscribers each put $50,000 into their own RRSPs via that accumulated income payment. One question I get quite a bit is with the traditional RESP, the parents and kids arrangement, whether that money can go into the kids' RRSPs, and it cannot. It can only go into the subscribers' RESPs. And in order to be a subscriber in a family plan, you have to be a parent of the beneficiary. It is possible, if you do ever run into this, where there's more than $50,000 that has to come out or more than the RSP limit, and you only have one subscriber, you can actually name a joint subscriber if it's that traditional mom and dad and the kids are ESP. You can name the other parent as a joint subscriber and effectively the next day do the AIP twice, do two RSP rollovers up to $100,000 then would be available to put into those two RSPs. The fourth type of withdrawal, which nobody ever thinks about, but it does show up on our ESP paperwork, and that is the payment to a designated educational institution. This is just the default arrangement in the case that nobody can find the subscriber or beneficiary when the plan has to mature. Plans have to mature after either 31 or 35 years, depending how they were set up. And if there is no sign of those folks and the plan has to be collapsed, that payment to a designated educational institution would just result in all of the grants and bonds going back to the government and any amount left being transferred to whatever that post-secondary institution is. The other thing that I wanted to point out with Mitchell's discussions here was he also talked about the client behavior. He really talked about trying to encourage that long-term thinking, that saving and investing behavior early, seemed to be a really big fan of that. And this is no surprise. I know that Mitchell and I have talked quite a bit about various items of behavioral finance. He's a real student of Dr. Dan Crosby, who's gotten mentioned in previous podcasts here. Of course, Dan Crosby is the author of The Laws of Wealth and recently just released another book called The Behavioral Investor. I haven't checked it out yet, but I've heard good things. I find that people who spend a lot of time just reading that material, it's one of those things where you maybe don't quite recognize what you're learning or what you're picking up while you read it. You know, there's something there, but then that something shows up in those conversations with clients and oftentimes it just sort of seeps into the subconscious. 
So it's not like studying the RESP where you're going to get a bunch of facts and figures and technical details. Instead, it's really something that you read and learn so that it kind of sneaks into your consciousness, like a good traditional sales approaches or communications or client psychology. Same type of thing with this behavioral finance that's, of course, become so hot today. You'll be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC as in Business Career College, bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, uh, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you will have to sign up. And you'll be able to sign up there, and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. This episode of the CE Podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the Life Insurance Licensing Program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. All right, lots there in Mitchell's interview. And on that note, we're going to move on to Megan's interview. Now, some of you might remember Megan. She was in season one, and she talked about wellness plans there. This time, she's also going to use that group benefits approach to address a sort of unconventional problem, although, as she points out here in the interview, an increasingly common problem in group benefits. So just for those that don't do a lot of benefits work, I would like to take a moment here to introduce a few concepts. There's quite a bit of group benefits related technical detail in Megan's talk. And I think it's useful to look at how a benefits renewal works. So basically what happens is, let's say that I'm a brand new group, I'm an employer, and I have, let's say 10 employees, and we're going to go and get coverage. So we've never had coverage before. So you're going to shop around to a bunch of insurers. Megan talks here about an RFP, a request for proposal. That's what you'll see from larger, more sort of established employer groups. In our case, we probably just call somebody like Megan and say, show us four or five quotes and Megan would go shop around to four or five insurers and come back. And those insurers would look at our group. They would say, okay, 10 employees in a white collar industry, office, Here's the demographic group. You've got people at these ages and these ages and these ages, these sex. These people have this family makeup. So this many of them have kids or are married or whatever. You don't get into anything beyond that. No concerns about smoking status or whatever. Just a very basic demographic makeup. And then the insurer will pull that information and say, okay, in a group that size, here's what we would expect for claims in that first year and they will set your premiums on that basis. And of course, insurers aren't charities. They would look at that expected claims. The insurers will have a loss ratio. That is basically how much of the premium they want to pay out in claims, and then anything beyond that would be for the insurers. 
own reserves that would be their profit and their administrative costs and their marketing costs and so forth. So they look at how much they have to pay out in expected claims and then they will top that up for whatever they have to bring in to run their business. And that group then, that employer group, pays that much premium for that first year. And at the end of the first year, roughly, all the group benefits people are screaming into their radios right now or whatever, that the first year isn't normally 12 months, but whatever. So after some period of time, renewal will come up. Essentially, think of this like a one-year term product. So that renewal will have a price adjustment in it, and that's going to be based on the experience for that group, to some extent anyways. For a small group, we don't lean too much on their experience, but as that group's been with that carrier for longer and longer, we're going to lean more and more on that group's experience. The problem here is that if you have the situation that Megan is talking about in this story where there's a very large claim, well, it might not show up immediately over time, that claim will basically just cause the small group's premium to adjust upwards. So you don't really get anything for free here. If you end up with a very expensive claim, like what Megan describes, that is going to drive your premiums up. This is a very challenging scenario for a small group, and you'll hear Megan talk about this, and I give some numbers as we work through the interview. The point is that you don't get something for nothing with your benefits plan. Your renewals are going to reflect your claims experience. Okay, I hope that explanation helps as we go through this. It's quite a detailed look at a very specific problem that comes up quite a bit in group today. Let's hear from Megan then. Thanks very much for joining us today, Megan. Hello. Megan is a group representative based here in Edmonton. She does a little bit of individual business, but the vast majority of her work is on the group side. That's accurate, Megan? Yes, it is. A lot Perfect. of it is in small, small group market under the 30 employees. Which is very normal in Edmonton. I think you would find most group folks in Edmonton specialized in small group, not that many large employers headquartered in Edmonton. Yes, correct our economic engine, as it were. So before the call, Megan and I were chatting about a couple of cases she's dealt with recently that have been of particular interest. And I know anybody who's dealt with any group business at all will be familiar with this problem. But Megan mentioned a particular client she has where prescriptions were particularly high. Was it claims? Was it numbers of prescriptions? Can you give a little background on that? So in this case in particular, we had not seen any sort of high drug claims going through, pretty standard, a lot of maintenance drugs, until one renewal and they got a significant increase and they were wondering why. And this group had 40 lives. And so when you have a, a high costing drug go on a plan, obviously that kind of usage and experience that goes through the plan can be significant in terms of the renewal rate. So what we came across was we don't know if it was an employee or a spouse. Again, with small group, uh, we're a little bit limited on what we can find out from details. And it depends on the carrier, too. So some carriers will give us the employee claims, and some will give spouse claims, and some will give other dependent claims. But in this case, we didn't know. And because of the sensitivity around 
the the drug and what it was used for. We didn't want to pry too much, especially with regards to HR regulations. So the drug that came onto this group was Epclusa. And so this one is used for hepatitis C and it has a 98% cure rate. So it's a great drug that is helping a lot of Albertans. And it's unfortunate that the cost of it is so significant. It could have run up to $400,000 for the year, but depends on obviously how the doctor is prescribing it and such. So the drug usage for this group in the one year that this one came on board was trending at about 207%. So that was a significant increase in just a, a short period of time. We actually looked at when it had come on board. And for this group in particular, it was the last quarter it had raised that 207%. So with this drug, essentially having a good chance, at 98% chance of curing hepatitis C, what do you do? Like, do you say, no, nope, we can't do this. We're going to just put a drug cap in place. That would be really horrible for that person if they no longer have that coverage, right? But at the same time, we're trying to keep costs for this company in particular. Obviously, the last few years have been hard for a lot of Albertan companies. And so costs, you know, and, and seeing a significant increase in their, their renewal rates was also detrimental. And obviously, again, coming back to confidentiality, and we didn't want to pry too much. We can't just go outright and send an email to everybody, please let us know if you have hep C. So with that, what we ended up doing was we did put a drug cap in place. We sent out a memo saying we had to make some changes to the plan due to sustainability of the plan and cost-saving reasons. However, if this affects you, please contact, and they gave our information so that we could send help that person out with alternative coverage and not delay or change any of their coverage, right? Because again, this is a very important drug that this person needs to be on and we want to ensure that they there's continuance of coverage. So with that, we're not breaking any of the confidentiality between the employer and the employee. And obviously there's Alberta Blue Cross non-group coverage, but that list of what's covered under there is ever changing. And so we wanted to make sure that that drug was on the plan and it was just in 2017 they had added it onto the plan so this was a good thing it's obviously funded by the alberta government so we want to make sure that people are utilizing it unfortunately in this case in particular the carrier had not actually done the amendment to the plan for the drug cap so it's continued on and we're just kind of fixing that that just came to our table last week so, but regardless, that was our game plan. Obviously, that was the only high-costing drug at that time on the plan. And just trying to protect the employer at this time, we put that drug cap in place. However, what had also happened after that was the owner was prescribed a high-costing drug as well. The way that it typically goes, not everybody can get coverage just by, hey, their doctor prescribes them a high-costing drug, they take that prescription to the pharmacist and they just get approved for a $40,000 drug. That's not the way it works. They have to go through special authorization. And when that special authorization happens, they're gonna check to see if they've tried alternative prescriptions before they put them on the higher-costing one. So for the owner, what had happened is they wanted to ensure, so he was prescribed or Tesla, which is for psoriasis or plaque arthritis. And with this one, they wanted to ensure that he had taken another option beforehand. And so with that, we had to call 
it, this would have been, he had tried it about eight years ago. So we had to try to find out what pharmacy he had prescribed and to prove to the insurance carrier that he had already tried it. And, and then therefore we could get that Ortesa approved. So that was a little bit of a runaround and we're still in the process of doing that. We have two options that are, or two outcomes for this. And so one, obviously, decline. We can't find the information to prove that he's taken this other drug prior to trying out Ortesla. And then if it is declined, then obviously with him being an owner, we have access to our cost plus or through this carrier, it would be the medical reimbursement plan. So whether it's through Strive Insurance Cost Plus or through the carrier's medical reimbursement plan, we could write this off through his company. And so that would still be covered and we get some tax money out of the company. If it is approved, then what happens is he's assigned a case coordinator and then just to ensure that he's properly taking it um, at the recommended dosage, that it is effectively working. And then also they work with the pharmaceutical companies to ensure that all the discounts have been exhausted through that pharmaceutical company. Obviously, a lot of these drugs are, are significant costs and, and a lot of the, the weight is being bared on the insurance companies right now. And obviously with small group, most of their stop loss pooling is at 10,000 or 15,000. And so if you think about it and you have, for this case, if you had two of these go through and their stop loss pooling is at 15,000, well, that's $30,000 that they're essentially on the hook for, um, for experience. And that's significant just for the two drugs. And what we're noticing with the the drugs is in 2014, they started hitting our radar um, and great, they're life-changing drugs. Unfortunately, where we would see like maybe one every 50 renewals in 2014, now it's like one every 10 to 15. And it's having a significant impact on people's rates. And small businesses, they don't have the numbers to afford these types of claims going through their plans. So the outcome with the client is we are sticking with the drug cap to ensure that these people, we can get them coverage off of the plan. But with doing that, we always confirm that that drug is covered with the non, the Alberta Blue Cross non-group plan. And for this case that Clusa was with the owner, we're kind of dealing with it right now. But it's, it's quite the process and just a hot topic in our industry, obviously, right now. Really is. You've opened up a ton of topics going through that. Megan, I'm going to try and knock out some of my questions here, although I'm sure I'll leave a couple of questions unanswered. Just to confirm, the owner, you're working the Alberta Blue Cross route with him as well? So him right now, because, well, for the first one, the Epclusa, it was covered under the plan. So that one was good. With his, we're not certain yet if it is going to be covered or if it's not going to be covered. So if it isn't going to be covered, we can check with the non-group plan. Uh, the last time we checked, it wasn't on the list. Again, that list, that's the trouble with it as an alternative is it's kind of ever-changing. They just look and obviously if there's too many people that are on it, then funding reasons, they, they knock it off or they add. So it's kind of in our back pocket, but right now we're just trying to go through that prior authorization to get it covered under the plan. And if it's not, obviously the non-group would be one alternative. And then the last, the last alternative would be the non-group. Perfect. I'm going to throw some numbers out here just to give people who maybe don't see a lot of renewals a rough idea. So you talked about a $400,000 prescription for the Eclusa 
but that full $400,000, much of that is going to hit the insurer's pooling. And you talked about then yeah. the real direct cost for this group is 207% trend on its drug coverage. Yeah. So for 40 lives, I'm going to assume that that's uh, something like probably $20,000 of premium increase in that vicinity. Megan, is that about right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And this one in particular, I think their renewal, because we only caught the quarter end of it, like it only hit their experience for the, the most recent renewal, their overall renewal was going up 54%. Right. So tons of that experience, as it were, would have been captured in that renewal. And it's like you say, it makes a big difference whether that claim happens in the first quarter or the last quarter, which I think, again, is something people wouldn't necessarily think about if they haven't seen a lot of renewals. Yeah. Okay. Now you mentioned that you checked the Alberta Blue Cross formulary to make sure that it would cover Eclusa and or Tesla. What would you have done if Alberta Blue Cross doesn't cover these on its formulary? What's your course of action then? Generally, I mean, with the owner, we have the option of having the medical reimbursement plan or the cost plus. Um, it's a way of him funding it through his business. So his business is paying for it. So he's not paying with it with his own after-tax dollars. It is extremely unfortunate if we can't and we more than likely would not unless the benefit plan was at a breaking point where they would have to turf it all together. We wouldn't want to do that with an employee, obviously, especially in this case, we knew. So first, before we made that drug cap amendment, we checked to see what our alternatives were and we knew that that one would be covered. The only option really for us is that non-group and then the cost plus, but obviously with the cost, if it was an employee and it, and it would be racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars, there's no way an employee would be able to afford that and we wouldn't have put the drug cap in place. Right. Basically, the employer would have to kind of suck it up. And I know that's a terrible phrasing to mm -hmm. use, but that's sometimes that's the way it goes with these expensive claims. Are you aware, Megan, with drugs with Eclusa or with or Tesla? as to what the normal treatment period is? Would somebody be on these for a year, two years, five years, eternity? Yeah, so that's the other thing that we look into. So it's, it's interesting because I never expected to be this well-versed in the medical world. Like I'm an insurance agent, right? But obviously there's a lot of ties to our healthcare system and the insurance that covers this healthcare system, right? So. So for this, we did a little bit of digging, and what we could find out is it's typically, so for Eclusa, people will start seeing some really good results after 12 weeks, and, and with that, we knew that if it's at a 98% cure rate, there's a good chance that this person might not be on it forever, but again, we were trying to get some cost savings for the, the employer in this case, but if we weren't so hard-pressed for cost savings in the future, then we could have actually let this run its course and we knew in a, in, within a year this person would be off of that drug and if they were cured, right? The other thing that we have to keep in mind is if some, for example, if somebody has hep C, they probably have some other health ailments or they might be on other drugs or needs other health care within that. So we want this person to get cured of that disease so that you know, all the other health ailments that might be going on, not just the, the high costing drug, but everything else can be taken off of the benefit plan as well. My next question is, I hear this so often where 
the owner or the owner's spouse ends up with an expensive claim and it changes the benefits plan, it changes the relationship with the carrier, or it changes perceptions. Did you find in this case that when the owner ended up with a very expensive prescription that the owner's perception of the plan changed? Yes, this absolutely happens. Or if it's, if it's the owner or the plan administrator, what they want covered and what the employees want covered, if that differs, it, it completely changes the landscape of the benefits coverage, absolutely. So for this case, the employee had it covered and we were trying to get him coverage elsewhere. So that's a little bit, that's like putting the drug cabinet in, in place with an extreme measure, but with the owner, we're still uncertain if it is gonna be covered, but because he's having to go through the ringer um, to get the coverage, he is just done with the carrier altogether. And I, you know, we have to try to educate them that regardless of the insurance carrier, this is standard practice across the industry. And, but now he's got a bad taste in his mouth because he's having to go through this process. So yes, absolutely. It does. Whoever's handling the plan changes the landscape of, of the plan design. In fact, he's probably trapped with this carrier for a period now, isn't he, Megan? Yes. Until we find out if he got that coverage, because the best case scenario is we want it to be covered under the plan. So then we use at least some of that experience under the plan and for this one we're not quite certain how long he'll be on it either uh, because he's just been prescribed it and you know we have grandfathering that happens if we move to another carrier when someone's already gone through the ringer with one carrier and then we have to go through the same process with another it's never a great outcome because then they just hate insurance altogether so going back to your comment earlier, I can't remember what your statistics were, but you said you're going to see a large claim like this. Maybe it was one in 10 or one in 15 groups. Knowing that now, what advice would you have for other reps out there prepping their small groups for the near certainty that they're going to have one of these large claims at some point? If you had looked at our request for proposals five years ago, it would have never had a drug cap in place. And now we're seeing that, you know, the highest tier of benefits coverage has unlimited and has no drug caps in place where we're working with more preventative measures. We have the stages, the first stage, the basic, you know, we have a a $2,000 or $3,000 drug cap in place. And then our second tier is at $5,000. And then the third tier is unlimited. Or you could do, and this is generally at 80% coverage, for the first and second tier is 80% coverage, and then you might say 90% coverage thereafter. Yeah, we never used to have an issue having unlimited amounts. A lot of it was within reason and now is not. So a lot of people are, are going with preventative measures and right from the get-go, they're putting the drug caps in place. But with, with educating the plan administrator that if you do have anybody that hits, and it, again, it, it's sometimes a sensitive subject, Um, and they're not comfortable talking about it and that's why we have memos that are sent out if you if this coverage is not sufficient for your needs please contact us directly and then we help get them coverage elsewhere so yeah you're right off the get-go we're putting these caps in place or doing some sort of formulary plan to make it a little bit easier for people to have that coverage and what I always tell my friends and family if they don't have the coverage go get a We'll get a job somewhere that does have the coverage. 
These are going to be more and more difficult, and I appreciate you sharing that, Megan. That sounds like a case that took a lot of extra work. It sounds like you really worked with the employer to help them manage both their costs and their employees' needs, which is a hard balance to strike. I appreciate you sharing all of that, Megan. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, as promised, lots of detail there. I'll go over a few of the relevant items here. First off, as we heard at the beginning of the interview, Megan is located in Alberta. And Alberta, we really have a big advantage here as far as how this works in terms of drug coverage. What's going to happen is when you're a small group and you're using an insurance plan like what Megan's talking about here, there will be some point at which your claims get large enough that they get moved over to what's called the stop loss. And that's basically where there's some dollar amount limit, and we talked about ten dollars or $15,000 in the interview, where over that limit, you're no longer using that experience for your own claims. That gets pooled in with all of the insurers' groups, and insurers then essentially share that risk amongst their whole set of groups. And this is not free every small group or every group is going to pay something to participate in that stop loss pool. The benefit is that that keeps that claims experience or at least a good chunk of that claims experience off of the small group. Now you heard Megan talk about these numbers where she said not that long ago, it was very, very rare. Just in the last four or five years, it was very rare to see such a large drug claim. And now she's seeing one with about every 10 to 15 renewals. And she does a lot of small group business. This is something, certainly I think about this for our own group. We're at Business Career College right now. We're a dozen employees. I know it's only a matter of time before we have somebody who ends up on a twenty dollars or $30,000 prescription or more expensive. In this interview, we heard about several hundreds of thousands of dollars. So what happens is when you start to get those large costs, then we have a few different possible handlings of it. Now, in Alberta in particular, Alberta Blue Cross is the insurer of default. So in other provinces, we see other ways to do this. But in Alberta in particular, the government of Alberta subsidizes Alberta Blue Cross, and then anybody can get a non-underwritten plan. It's the non-group plan that Megan talked about here. Anybody can get a non-underwritten plan that will cover, mostly it's used for prescription drugs, but it does cover other stuff as well. And what will happen is benefits reps in Alberta who see these large claims will often try to get the plan member who is submitting those large claims to move over to Alberta Blue Cross. Now, it used to be that there was very little confidentiality concern around this. It used to be that insurers would release these reams of information at renewal, and you could see exactly what employee was using exactly what drug. And you would just go tap that employee on the shoulder and say, hey, we're going to move you over to Alberta Blue Cross. The employer would find some way to make it economically viable for this person. And then that person would come off the plan. And Alberta Blue Cross would basically pick up that risk that way. Today, though, insurers have gotten much more sensitive about the information they release. And for small groups, really, they release very little information because the concern has been in a very small group that you can effectively use that information 
to pick out who the expensive employees are, it leads to a form of adverse selection, or it leads to a situation even where an employer might be tempted to fire somebody when they see that ten dollars or $15,000 prescription drug claim. So the problem now has become that you can't really just go tap that employee on the shoulder and say, hey, we're moving you over to Alberta Blue Cross. We're getting you off the plan. And so plans today will introduce a drug cap. And I see this with a lot of new plans. So a lot of plans that first go to market, the benefits rep will say, let's put a drug cap in place here. And then if you have an employee who runs into that drug cap, they will identify it will move that person onto Blue Cross right away. So it, the employee will effectively self-identify because if you have an expensive drug claim like that, your pharmacist will get it pre-approved. They have to pre-approve it. And that pre-approval is when you'll find out that you're running into that dollar cap limit or that drug cap limit. And that's when they'll look for some alternate solution. So it's a way to manage that problem. And there's a bunch of other solutions available here, but that's what Megan talked about, that drug cap is a very common solution to that. There are some very data-focused solutions to that. There's all kinds of stuff that can be done there. Um, if you're in the small group market, I'm sure this is something you're familiar with. If you have small groups and you're not familiar with this problem, this is a good reason to familiarize yourself with that small group market. One of my favorite resources here, fellow out in Vaughan, Ontario, by the name of Dave Patriarch, runs a group called the Canadian Group Insurance Brokers, and CGIB has all kinds of resources to help their members navigate these kinds of problems. So it's something to consider anyways, is how do you deal with that problem? And if you think, well, I've only got three or four groups, it's not that big a deal. Keep in mind what Megan said. She says she's running into this one every about 10 to 15 renewals. If I've got four groups, that means I should expect to see one of these about once every four years. If I'm not prepared for it, it's going to cause me a problem. It's going to be a negative experience both for you and for your client. It is something that you should be aware of what to do in your particular province to solve that problem. Now, Megan did talk about a couple of other things that happen on these high dollar amount claims. She talked specifically about a case coordinator and this has become very common with these more expensive prescription drug claims. Because it's tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars that's being spent here, insurers want to make sure that this is being done properly, that it's being done in a case where it's actually going to have beneficial medical outcomes. They will assign a case coordinator to this. The case coordinator will also try to keep the cost down. So they'll negotiate with the drug companies. Even if a prescription drug is priced at three or $400,000, there are often subsidies or discounts available and the case coordinator will work with the drug company or uh, sometimes we'll have provincial coverage. This is the case in Alberta with cancer drugs, for instance, where there'll be some provincial drug coverage that kicks in to pick up some or all of those costs. So that case coordinator will work with the client and work with other available resources to see what can be done with those high dollar amount claims. Now, another solution that Megan mentioned here was, and this is something you sometimes see with the owners, is the use of a cost plus arrangement. And this is where you sometimes see the ownership group and really properly this should be structured as the management group. I want to be really cautious here 
about delivering tax advice. I would be very, very careful setting one of these up, and I would only do this today with good tax advice. There was a memo released from CRA back in April that I think was a little bit of a warning shot at what's happening with some of these plans. But it is theoretically possible to set up a cost plus arrangement where the group has some dollar amount limit and says, okay, for the management group, which often suspiciously overlaps with the ownership group, we will pay claims of up to 10 or $20,000 or whatever the case is. And then those claims just get shuttled to the employer. The employer will pay that or will send that off to the insurer. The insurer will charge maybe five or 10% as an admin surcharge and they will pay that claim. This is a little bit, if you have to be really careful with it, like I said, in terms of your tax outcomes, I would run it by a tax professional before I started to get that aggressive with it. For a few hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars or for something that benefits a larger group of employees other than just ownership, it's probably not a problem. But where you start to just pick on the ownership group, this is a little bit iffy. Okay, lots of good stuff there from Megan, really in-depth in both interviews. You can see I had the same sort of feature where the client presents a problem. Both, I think, demonstrated good expertise in their field and found a way to solve that problem. Maybe something a little bit unconventional, maybe a little bit of a curveball in there, but both applied, I think, a good combination of understanding what their client needed along with their technical expertise. The number for today's episode is four. The number for today's episode is four. You'll be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College, bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, uh, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you will have to sign up. And you'll be able to sign up there, and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. This episode of the CE Podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the Life Insurance Licensing Program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. I wanted to take a second to acknowledge the folks that have left us an iTunes review. Chris left us an iTunes review and Chris specifically commented about the improved audio quality. I hope that we're maintaining that. I would appreciate hearing from people about that audio quality. And a couple people were good enough to email me in response to my question about whether or not there was 
too much Jason or not enough Jason in the last episode of season one. Appreciate those comments back. And I wanted to, not that she left a review, but I wanted to specifically thank uh, Dr. Vivian. Dr. Vivian mentioned that she really enjoyed the podcast. She tracked me down at a recent event I was at and commented that it was good company for her while she was raising her little one. So thanks, Dr. Vivian. That's good. We should be back on to our regular two-week release schedule now. Because we had this backup with this ethics course, we've been able to get some episodes ready. So you can look forward to another episode in two weeks' time. Thanks so much for listening. And please do pop over to bccquiz.online to get your continuing education credits. We'll be back again in two weeks. Thanks very much for listening. A bunch of people have a hand in producing this podcast. Joseph Tong takes care of our music and editing. Anthony Summers is responsible for tech support. Maria Nguyen takes care of all the CE applications to the various accrediting bodies. Marjorie Lewis takes care of certificates when the machine doesn't do it. Desiree Gretton Hicks and Penny Watt take care of our marketing, making sure that there are folks out there to listen to the podcast. Thanks to all those who help out. Mm-hmm.